Hey guys, this is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. Hey guys, this is Chloe, and you guys are in for a special treat today. You're going to hear from Jim Cofield. Chloe, you introduced me to this guest that we're going to have today. Yes, I texted you from the seminar that I was doing. Jim came to my church to do a seminar called How to Be a Healthy Person. And so, of course, I wanted to go. And the seminar was actually about the Enneagram, but Jim did so much more than the Enneagram. He talked about kind of the basics of how we interact with each other, what happens when we walk into a small group. And he uses this analogy about an iceberg that you guys are going to hear. That's just awesome. So we loved him. <laughs> and you called Loved him, him and reached out and said, and, he and said I called yes. him and I said, Jim, this is Chloe. And I was in your seminar and I need you to be on this podcast because I need everybody <laughs> to hear what you have to say. So, I can't wait. Yeah. Can't you wait. guys are in for a treat. So it's great to have you, Jim. Thanks so much for joining me today. Why don't you start by telling everybody just a little bit about yourself? Well, I was born into a ministry family many, many years ago, 65 now, born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and first memories are in western Michigan where my dad was in a church, and then we moved back to Tennessee. Within two years, we were living in northern Ontario, Canada, because uh, he just felt called to go up there as a missionary to work with Native Americans and um, enjoyed that very much. So went to college in, in Chattanooga and then went to Dallas Seminary after that and planted a church in Virginia, had a, another church ministry in um, the Chicago area, and now been for the last 12 to 14 years with Cross Point Ministry. Maria to Joy, have two wonderful children and um, two grandsons. Oh, <laughs> I bet that's fun. So a lot of what you do also is just working with leaders through Crosspoint. So I know Chloe was very moved by just how you spoke into her life uh, as you were doing that at her church. And so some of the things we want to talk about is just what does it look like to be a healthy person? (laughs) I know that sounds so 101 and basic, but I think everybody wants that, but they don't always know how to go about that. And so let's talk about what is a healthy person and, and what does it look like to pursue that? Very easy question there. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, what does it mean to be thing. a healthy person? I think, well, let me take a step back and say, I believe we are constituted relationally. We are, our core reality is that we are relational beings because we've been created in the image of the relational God, Father, Son, Spirit. And we bear that, that DNA, as it were, that image in, in ourselves. So, I think the quality of our life depends on the quality of our relationships. We have families that are supposed to help us, prepare us for relating well. And when we grow up in a healthy family, let's just talk about it just kind of from an emotional, mental perspective. I think there are some very basic key qualities for that. One is that I'm, I'm a receptive person rather than reactive. If I'm constantly or primarily reactive, it's going to be hard to be in, in uh, healthy relationships. Another thing is I think a healthy person is more resilient than rigid. In other words, they know how to bounce back. They know how to not get pushed into a corner where they are 
kind of rigidly and dogmatically evaluating everything. I think a healthy person is aware, very mindful, versus unaware, emotionally clueless. I think a healthy person is responsible for their own life. They don't blame. They don't claim a victim status. They, they take responsibility for themselves. I think they're differentiated, not enmeshed. I think they're empathetic. I think they're fairly strong instead of fragile. They're stable. They're realistic and not overly idealistic. They don't have expectations that are unattainable. And I think one other really healthy thing is that a healthy person has a healthy imagination. They're able to see life rather than growing stale. They see life in wonderful ways. So Mm. those are some just what I feel are some mental or emotional healthy qualities to have. And if we add the spiritual on top of that, I think we got to start with God is for me. There's a lot of gratitude. There's contentment. There's character. There's virtuous character with the fruits of the Spirit. We know how to trust. We know how to hope. We know how to be humble. We know how to desire. We know how to love well. So these are just things that I think make up a healthy leader and a health, just a healthy person. So I don't know if that's so, what you had in mind or not. Yeah, that's fantastic. I Yeah, people are going to be taking notes. I want to talk about your iceberg analogy because you're saying that relationship is so essential to life. And I think it is part of what makes us healthy. And so what does it look like to walk into a room and you're interacting with people? What's What is going on when we engage and, and come into other people's lives? Uh, because we are relational beings, God has created us with permeable souls. In other words, we absorb things without thinking or th- even thinking that we are. For example, um, you know, I've had times where I've said to myself, or I certainly said when I was younger, I'm not going to be like my dad on that one. Now, my dad was a really good dad in many ways, but you know, there were a couple of places I said, ah, I'm not going to do it that way. And then when I had teenagers, I heard my dad speaking through my mouth. In other words, I had absorbed, because my soul is permeable, I had absorbed a lot of him. And that's held in what's called our implicit world. We can think of the iceberg as 5 to 10% above the waterline, and then the rest of it below the waterline. And the waterline is consciousness. Most of who we are is held in kind of the unseen part of ourselves. I think we can know it. I think that's what Psalmist was praying when he said, search me, O God, not because God needed to know what was down deep, but because he needed to know. And so we have this implicit world. We call it kind of our unthought knowns. We know them, but we don't think about them. The implicit world is, is all the things we learned w- without paying attention. Mm-hmm. Our explicit above the waterline is what we learned by paying attention. I learned two plus two equals four, and I had to pay attention and learn that. But a lot of lot of me I picked up without having to pay attention. It's from there, it's from that reality that we do our, our relational engagement. And so then it, it begs the question of, oh no, I, I've picked up without meaning to. I, I grew up in if if someone's thinking to themselves, I grew up in an unhealthy family where I picked up unhealthy patterns, can I change? Yes. That's the good news. Yes. (laughs) The challenging news is that change is harder than we want, and it takes longer than we want. But the Mm. good news is that we can change. 
and um, what we're changing is by God's grace, we're not changing just our actions, but we're changing at a fundamental level, our capacity to trust well and who we trust. Because if we can trust God well, then we, then we can believe and act on what he has to say. Then it gets to our deepest core of our being. So that, that can change. But our deepest change has to happen relationally. It has to happen by being in a relationship. Mm. That's, that's why the greatest gift I can give someone is my transformed and transforming presence. Because they're going to absorb who I am. And it's going to make a difference deep within their soul. So yes, I can change. We change by being in relationship with our Lord. And his, his presence, his virtue, his character, his compassion are absorbed by the Spirit into our lives. So we, we make them our own. So it's good news that we can change. That's what I meant by a healthy person takes responsibility. They don't claim the victim and just say, well, that's who I am. It's too bad, and I'll be that way the rest of my life. So I know there's somebody listening right now that's thinking, okay, I'm in. I want to change. I My heart's racing when you're saying that. I don't want to be a victim anymore. But what is that choice? What does that look like for them today practically? Well, one of the practical things is if my soul is absorbing the presence of someone, I ought to be in the presence of someone who's you know, whose character and presence I want as mine. Mm. And that's why solitude and silence, contemplative reading and prayer, have had such a long history in the church, is because we dedicate and give ourselves over to spending time alone with the Lord, in quietness before the Lord, so that we, we read some from Scripture, and we hear His voice there, and what is His voice to me? So I spend time with the Lord, I have to spend time with others, and I think that's why the New Testament makes a big deal of the, the new family, the family of God, and kind of hanging out with people who are ahead of me in the journey so that they can help me and I can, I can learn from them as to how to be a more healthy, holy person. So I think solitude and silence with the Lord, community is very important. I certainly think becoming more self-aware and learning what's cooking in me is very, very important. I think David Benner says, what we don't own will wind up owning us. And so the more I know about me, kind of the influence of my family, what hooks me, what gets me going, and then what's my game plan in light of that. The, the, so self-awareness is a critical factor when it comes to change. So when, when I walk into a room, or to a group of people, what is happening in my body, my soul in that moment? What what things are at play? Oh, <laughs> I think a lot's in play, and what's in play is depending a lot on um, family of origin. Because I learned, I basically my basic template for learning to relate and be around people is from my family and my personality style. Those two things: nature, nurture contribute to how I experience others to a great extent. Now that can change, but I need to be aware of what's going on. For example, if I grew up in a very highly authoritative household, that's going to affect the way I walk into the room and who I'm sensitive to. Because anyone that sounds or feels a little bit authoritative, I'm either going to be very cautious if I have a more withdrawn personality style, or I might get very aggressive 
if I have a one more uh, assertive style. So that's going to happen when I get into the room. I think another thing that's going to come into play is my attachment pattern, whether I'm avoidant, where I don't know how to trust you. I trust me, but not you. If I'm ambivalent, I trust you, but not me. Or I'm kind of scattered and disorganized or very stable. I know how to trust me. I know how to appropriately trust you. So that's in play when I go into a room. <laughs> so there, there's just a lot in play. And my experiences, my life experiences, I, I work a lot with pastors and leaders, and I, I hear a lot of reports about small group experiences, and people come into small groups hoping to find family, but they define family kind of based on the family they had or their hopes for the family they never had. And so they'll put expectations on leaders that are just you know unbearable, that are way too much. So there's just a lot coming. <laughs> there's a lot going on when I walk into a room. And the, <laughs> and the, and the issue is, am I, do I have some awareness of what's going on in me? Do I pay attention to my body? Because it's going to help tell me what's going on in me because we're embodied souls. A wise, mature person seeks to be very aware of what they're feeling when they walk into a room. And that means they're paying attention to their body because feelings are states of body. Emotions are states of body that register in our mind. So, yeah, a lot going on. And I hope when you walk in, you can just enjoy it. I hope there are good people <laughs> there that you can enjoy. Well, and I'm laughing because it's so complicated. I mean, we would love to think that relationships were as simple as like a few steps to figure out or to understand, but you know, I I know better. Like we've done a ton of work and in, in on our past and our stories and our family history. And my husband and I have been in counseling and and other types of environments where we've been safe to really work through who we are and where that's come from. And you're right. Like it is not ever simple. We're always conflicting or having a conversation with someone who is coming from an array of experiences and sources that we don't know, that we yeah. we don't have that. We don't always have access to that. One of the best things that, that we've found is telling our stories with people that are safe and that we want to do deeper community with doing that very quickly because yeah. it gives you such a context to why they react the way they react. So what are some other ways you found to kind of yeah. dig, dig beneath the surface? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I was just going to mention that. You said someone saying, how do I do all this? And I mentioned time with the Lord, time with others. And when you're with others, you're exactly right. Tell your story and tell it repeatedly to different people who who love you and uh, hear you. Therapeutically, that's by far the greatest value in helping others move forward to integrate their lives is simply telling their story to someone who cares. And I think uh, if, if you can find people to tell your story uh, who will listen, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. I think uh, a practical way uh, of maybe organizing that is through a life map where I kind of like I start as far back as I can remember pre-kindergarten, have a page of paper, and I just write down things that I remember. No particular order necessarily, just things that I remember. And it may be strange to me as why in the world do I remember that? Well, as you write some things down, draw a line across, and then underneath the memory or the event, write, write down what emotion did you feel back then? 
And um, after you get a few pages written like that, maybe a page for pre-kindergarten, one page for kindergarten, one page for first grade, etc. After you get a few pages, at the very bottom, you can go back and start figuring out what did I start saying to myself as to how I need to live? What was my mm. interpretation? Let me give a simple example. When I was 10, my puppy was run over right in front of me. We're, I was playing with some buddies in the front yard. Puppy ran into the street, was run over. That's an event. I could still remember it. Now, what emotion did I have? I was obviously very sad. I was crying. I was just torn up because I love my puppy. I was also mad because the person who ran over him stopped and started chewing me out for letting my puppy get in the road. And that was just totally unreasonable. I, I didn't. I was just very upset. Well, if I get a lot of puppy stories, so to speak, where there's a lot of losses in life and a lot of sad emotions, that uh, interpretation, that bottom, that I'm, what I'm going to write on the bottom of the page, it might look something like this. I have to be careful of how close I get to anything I love because it could really hurt. The interesting thing is we live from our scripts. That's why people sabotage themselves. People who know a lot better, they sabotage because they have an unknown script that they're living by. Maybe a script of, I'm a shameful person. I am unworthy. And if that's their script, you're going to wind up living an unworthy, shameful life. You live into your scripts. I think one of the reasons that the book of Genesis gives so much coverage to Joseph is because there's a man who developed a script in life that was unbelievable. I'm sure he didn't get there easily, but he changed his script. He changed it to this, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. When I have a script like that that's guiding how I live, that's going to be a different life than a life of vengeance towards his brothers or whatever. So we live, we're living out of our scripts. And our scripts are coming from family of origin, our attachment pattern, our personality style, experiences that we've lived, maybe physical factors, losses that we've had, good things that have gone on in life. They're all contributing to the script. So am I aware of my scripts? If I am, then I have a chance to say, Lord, what needs to change here? And I think that's the good news of the gospel. The mega story is my little story is held in a big story that says that God is for me and is out for my good in some way, shape, or form. So we built something really fun for you guys. It is called The Friend Guide, and it is actually a chance to process everything we're talking about here. So you're going to get to process who your dear friends are and what does it look like to invest more intentionally in them. If there's one theme of this entire season, it's that we've got to be intentional. We are only going to have as much community as we intentionally invest and build into that. So this will help you do it. Do not miss it. It's on my website. Go to JennyAllen.com, J-E-N-N-I-E-A-L-L-E-N.com. Check it out. Another thing that you think is important for us to do is to ask people, how are you experiencing me? Which is absolutely 
terrifying. I'm sure you know when you ask people to do this how terrifying this is. But I've done this, and it has shocked me. I noticed a pattern with my team that I was getting a lot of defensive responses, and I was like, gosh, I don't – I'm not being extra opinionated. Why why am I getting these defensive responses? And so I asked one of my friends that that works with me, you know, how am I coming across? And because it was more than one person re- reacting this way to me and they said, "Jenny, your voice is very authoritative and you're our boss." So, <laughs> it feels like you have a very strong opinion and we need to all get online with it. And in my own mind, I felt like I was just bantering, like brainstorming with people and bringing ideas to the table. They took it as authoritative, the way I was posturing, the way I was saying things with a lot of passion and given my role in their life, you know, they were experiencing me in a different way than I realized. It was so helpful and it really changed even my posture in the room. Yes. I I love that question. As you said, it's a little scary to ask that. But I think it's an important question because it gives me insight into how others are viewing me. And I, I need to know that. I need to know that because I can get caught in my own matrix and have my own way of going about. For example, I'm sure your style, your personality style is more assertive. And so you talk in um, assertive ways and that's just normal for you. And it's a God-given way and good for you. But unless I'm aware of that and at times know how to, to remind people, this is my style, but I don't want you to take that as authoritarian, then uh, especially when I am your supervisor, I have to be aware of how, how people are experiencing me. Absolutely. So you have some questions that you think we should ask. So I want to mention some of these and then you can talk about them. One of them is, how are you experiencing me? Another one is, how do you see me exaggerating my gifts or underselling my gifts? And another one is, where are you seeing me take risks for the sake of Christ? You're basically, I think what you're saying in all this is, is you have to invite people into these sacred spaces. That's what we mean with the broad thing of living in community. Living in community invites others into my, into my world, into my life. For example, exaggeration and diminishment. I think that's the nature of what sin and our own wounds do to us. Sin, what I'm culpable for, wounds what uh, I'm not culpable for. Someone's hurt me by their sinning. Those wounds and sins tend to exaggerate or diminish something good. Our God creates what's good and blesses us with good gifts. And sin and wounds can exaggerate or diminish. For example, a person who's a very peaceful person, they just know how to bring reconciliation. Wonderful gift. We love people like that. Everyone feels understood by them and appreciated by them. But think of that gift getting exaggerated. Now it's kind of peace at any price. And that person loses their own soul, so to speak. They forget, they, they lose track of who they are because they've been so exaggeratedly taking care of everyone else. Good gift, exaggeration or diminishment. And I need others to help me. Where does it feel exaggerated? Where does it feel diminished? I need others to help me because I oftentimes can't see that for myself. So yes, exaggeration or diminishment, a, a, a big deal. Okay, another one is, where are you seeing me take risks for the sake of Christ? Taking risks for the sake of Christ simply means, I think, or or at least includes, that I am open 
and surrendered to what I feel God is calling me to do. And I'm living that vision as best I know how for my life. And that can take great courage. I think I need others to help clarify that with me. I know for for me, just when I decided to leave a comfortable place where I was teaching, hey, I was living on the family farm, and I felt like I want to go to seminary and get further training. I ran that by some people saying, does that make sense to you? This is what I'm feeling. Does that make sense? And uh, I had people help me and give me a response of saying, yeah, that looks like a courageous thing for you to do. So I think courage is stepping out in the face of um, danger. It's not being free from all of our fears, but it's stepping out in the midst of our fears to do what we know is right. I think that's an important thing for people to help me with. I need help. I need encouragement to take steps like that. Mm. So you talk a lot about shame and fear and guilt. And speaking of how we experience each other, this is definitely a barrier to deep community. I mean, this this is a roadblock, you know, and, and I think we hide and then other people are hiding too. So what does it look like to work through these and to build a different story that that are not bound by these things? Yes, I think, uh, as I understand it, shame, fear, and guilt showed up in Genesis 3. Definition, I would say, or the experience of shame is a feeling of, I am not worthy. There is something defective with me. Something is fundamentally wrong with me. Before I've even done anything, something's wrong with me. Our first response to shame was to put on an image, so to speak. There were fig leaves sown. Because we don't want people, if we feel fundamentally defective, I don't want someone to see that. And I think the good news of the gospel is pictured in Luke 15, where the son, the younger son, comes to himself and he says, I am going to go tell my father I'm no longer worthy. He felt shame, but he was vulnerable enough to come home and really vulnerable Mm. when he went into a party and allowed himself to be celebrated by others. So shame is a very toxic thing, and we need others to celebrate who we are. And we have to be vulnerable enough to put ourselves out there to be celebrated, to be loved, to be appreciated, to feel like we belong. And to the extent that we don't, and shame dominates our thinking like, I am unworthy, when that is dominating our, our thinking, when that's part of our script, we're going to put on the image of financial success or religious success or family success. We're going to put on an image and have people kind of interacting with that image rather than who we really are. And the trouble with that, the trouble with that is it leaves us feeling lonely because we're constituted relational beings. If we if we could get rid of our relational character, then we might could survive okay with that. But we can't because we're relational. We long to connect deeply and fully. Shame, shame makes us put on an image so that we don't connect in that way. Same with fear. Fear in Genesis 3 is we hid and we do a lot of hiding. Hmm. I'd love to close with you speaking directly to that person that's listening right now that feels disconnected. They feel isolated. They feel like I am the broken one that has come out of a hard family. I picked up things I don't want to pick up anymore. What would you say directly to them? First thing I would say is God is for you. And because God is for you, you have great hope. 
And I would encourage you to find a loving community where you can tell your story and trust that the Spirit of God who is in you is going to do good things for you. That you would risk going through your fears to sharing. That you would risk being vulnerable with your shame. That you would risk that for all the things we feel guilty because of what we've done or haven't done, that there is great forgiveness for that. So I would just say there is hope and there is healing. Interestingly, Jesus spent a lot of time healing in the Gospels. And I think we have that record because he's trying to convince us he wants to heal us as well. Thanks for listening to the Made for This podcast. If you want to learn more about Jim's ministry, Crosspoint, you can go to crosspointministry.com. And also check out the book that he wrote with Dr. Richard Plass called The Relational Soul. You can find it on Amazon and we'll make sure to include it in the show notes. Thanks for listening today, guys. See you next time.